and we're back with another episode of Gladiator Free Europe. I'm Abram, and today I'm joined by Russian Sam. Yo. Liam. How you doing? And hello, Sam. Hello. And if you haven't listened to this podcast before, it's a sort of history, sort of movie podcast. We're going to mostly discuss movies and try to discuss the historical context of movies. And so today we are going to the late 20th century USSR and the beginnings of the Russian Federation to look at one of the most interesting cultural figures from that pretty crazy time and place. Yeah. So this episode is going to be part one of our multi-part series on the National Bolshevik Party. So Nazbols, you've probably heard of them. Um, and if you haven't heard of them, you know, this should be a fun one. So straight off the bat, what is your guys' impression of who the Nazbols are going to this? I kind of uh, took them as a bit of a joke, to be honest, because their imagery is so ridiculous. But which it turns out there is some truth to it because it grew out of the punk movement and it grew out of this kind of embrace of extreme looking things. I, I mean, like the motto, yes, death and the their flag being literally just the Nazi flags with a hammer and sickle swapped in for a swastika. <laughs> it's like they are going for shock aesthetic, but it turns out to be a little more. We'll get into it. Before I really knew about the Nazbols, I just thought of them as a meme. And now that I know a little bit more, I still think they're a meme. But I think they're a meme that can tell you a lot about what Russian culture and society was like in the early 90s. And also where we're headed today. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> God, I mean, maybe my, so, yeah. My impression was, yeah, same as you, like they're a joke. But I thought they were like, I don't know, a Nazi party. But because Russians have an aversion to like Nazism, it's just like the Nazi party was some like Soviet flourishes. And for some people, it is kind of like that, but that isn't really what the party's about. Yeah, I mean, I got into, but I, I, later I do want to talk about the fact that I got into their music because I do feel there is some parallels, as Sam, Russian Sam said, between our moment in America today and the uh, Brezhnev era, USSR. So as uh, Halal Sam alluded to, this party comes out of the punk movement in like the 80s, 90s Soviet Union. And two of the main three founders were punks themselves. The first is Edward Lumanov, who was a Russian author who was living in exile in um, the West, you know, the United States and somewhere in Europe. Paris. Yeah, Paris. So in the 70s, and he uh, hung out with like a lot of famous punks and, you know, that punk scene in New York. He hung out with like the Ramones and stuff. Famous uh, chaotic bisexual. Oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> He uh, wrote a couple of pretty famous books. I mean, he, he's written a lot of books, but the two most famous ones are It's Me, Eddie, and Memoir of a Russian Punk. But um, he's a topic for like another episode. In this episode, we're going to talk about the other punk founder of the National Bolsheviks, who is Yegor Letov, a frontman of a famous underground punk band, um, Civil Defense, or in Russian. Thank you. Prior to... Being a founder of the MBP, he was one of the Soviet Union's most famous underground musicians, or one of the most famous underground punk musicians at the very least. And um, before he even turned 30, he put out something like 50 full-length albums between, you know, his personal projects and um, like side projects and like um, collaborations and stuff. It's unbelievable. Drugs work. Drugs work, kids. Yeah. <laughs> Even of the material that's available on Spotify, there's just so much of it, both um, through his solo work and in his various side projects and the various bands that he was involved with. 
Well, this is a bit of a cultural thing, I think, because in general, Russian musicians in the Soviet period were much more prolific than Americans are because they didn't have the same studio system where, uh, you know, they have to put out an album every two to three years based on uh, the statistics and whatever the label thinks is appropriate. These guys were just uh, a recording when they felt the inspiration to. That's really interesting. Yeah, and we're going to get more into like the broader Soviet music scene or Soviet punk scene later. But um, so yeah, in this episode, we're going to mostly talk about him, Letov, his life and music career, and his personal contributions to the NBP and his life afterwards. As uh, Russian Sam said, the Nazbols were mostly famous for their Nazi Germany flag with the hammer and sickle. And um, they're also famous for like marching in the streets, dressed all black, like waving the flag, you know, making a big scene and like on um, protests and stuff. And yeah, I mean, ideologically, like most people think of them as fascists. Like that's what we all thought. But ostensibly, they're supposed to be a coalition of extremists so you have far-left communists and far-right nationalists and they're united under the national bolshevik flag it's a it's the party of the deplorables here's my big question about the nozbles which i i never understood and i still don't understand that hopefully you guys can clear up obviously they have a flag very clearly inspired by the nazi flag like we said it's it's the red field with the white dot but instead of a swastika, it's the hammer and sickle. It kind of reminds me of that Simpsons gag about the the Nazi communists. But anyways, so my big question is, to what extent were these guys Nazis? Like, to what, what did they actually borrow from the actual Nazis and from Nazi ideology beyond the aesthetics? Not much, really, because a big thing is it's kind of different depending on people who were involved in the party in like membership sense and people who were like higher up and even then the higher ups were kind of mixed on what this party really was but it is a punk party and most of these people genuinely were in it just for like the punk aesthetics and just like making a scene and just they weren't actually i mean they probably had their own ideology or like views on how the country should be but most of the actual members we're basically just joining this to like make a scene. They weren't really joining this to like advance a political project. So I guess to some extent you can you, you can kind of compare it to like Sid Vicious, how he would wear like a swastika all the time, even though as far as I know he never once held a political belief at all. There's, well, for, for, it's, for, it's worth pointing out that's actually more uh, bold in Russia, the country that where tens of millions of people were killed by the, you know, the Nazi yeah. Germany. And I would also point out that in terms of um, I mean, when we think of Nazism, we do tend to think of, you know, German ethnic nationalism as part of the core of the ideology. And it's, I think it's important if we're talking about Litov and his political beliefs, 
to emphasize that he was not an ethnic nationalist. He, in an interview, he describes himself as a Soviet nationalist. He says, I think that over the 70 years of Soviet rule, a new nation emerged, the Soviet nation and the Soviet people. Everyone is now so mixed together it is impossible to speak of nationalism. On the mother's side, I descended from Cossacks, and my father's, I'm Buryat, blah, blah, blah. He doesn't believe in, like, the ethnic Russians kicking out all the Tatars and all these other groups. It, uh, um, um, it's not Luton Boden, it's just Boden. Yeah, <laughs> that actually is a huge distinction from like what we think of as like Nazism, you know, and of course, Russia at this time did have plenty of genuine and still does have plenty of like actual ethno-nationalists. Yeah, this, this is like a, a big problem that um, left-wing nationalists have had for years, because you want a nationalist party if you're like a small country that's, you know, a client state of some, you know, larger new liberal power. And you want to be able to lean on people's sense of pride in their country and their culture and sense of duty to their country. And, you know, but you also do not want to encourage right-wing nationalist beliefs, such as the view that a country is a specific ethnic, like, group. And obviously, in the case of uh, Russia or Soviet Union, like, it's a very multi-ethnic country. So you really do not want to encourage that. But it's this uh, fine balance that many nationalist movements, left-wing nationalist movements in uh, the world have grappled with, and we'll see that the Nazis grappled with it too. And yeah, you know, they do as good a job as anybody else. I'll say. <laughs> I would just like to say that the real umbrella of the Nazis, um, aside from uh, being against uh, the uh, the, uh, the Russian government that arose after '91, was. Uh, collectivism, because in Russia in this time period, you, it's, well, I wanted to say that it was unfathomable what was happening to people, but that's really no longer the case. If you look at videos of what's happening in San Francisco, for example, and all of these massive homeless encampments, that's essentially what was happening in the Soviet Union on a much larger scale. So, so the thing that united them was the fight for collectivism against loneliness and against alienation. I personally think it's all very stupid, but we're going to have a much bigger discussion on whether it was or not at the end of the episode. But before we really go deep into national Bolsheviks, let's discuss Yegor. Sorry, I'm, go I'm going to butcher this. Krastanskia Oborona, Russian for civil defense, often abbreviated to Grob, which coincidentally means coffin in Russian. Is uh, like that a funny thing or... Uh, it's clever, but I wouldn't really call it funny. It's another dark joke. It's another little dark th twist, you know, like it's called our name is Coffin. Yeah, exactly. It fits for a punk band, I'll say. But yeah, I'll I'll try use the English name Civil Defense throughout the episode, just so our uh, English speaking listeners can uh, have a good idea. So I say he's the most famous underground musician. And what does that mean? So in the Soviet Union, you have official musicians and underground musicians. Official musicians are the people who were legally allowed to perform at shows at venues and have their music played on the radio. And, um, you know, any music journalists were allowed to cover like their activities. And those bands were essentially decided by the government bureaucracy, the Ministry of Culture and um, the Ministry of um, Composers, I think. Yeah, they were called uh, Vocal and Instrumental Ensembles, often shortened to VIA, so VS. And um, those bureaucracies were in charge of all official music. So they're the ones who decide 
you know, what you can sing about and what kind of like music you're allowed to play. And, um, and they were very strict about what was and wasn't allowed. And they only approved a very small amount of bands in general. So the overwhelming majority of bands that existed in the Soviet Union were unofficial underground bands. It's a fundamentally different model of music distribution and production than what we have. Yeah. And I, I got to wonder if, uh, to some extent, if like the embrace of like, you know, Nazi aesthetics, both among the Nazbols and to a lesser extent in the earlier work by Letov, is because like, if you're part of a musical scene that's rebelling against the Soviet system, you're probably going to be pretty rebellious in your aesthetics. Yes, I would say that the big part of the Nazi aesthetics was their they were doing this as a way to draw equivalence between the Soviet system and the Nazi system. Not saying that's correct, but that's how they saw it. It's not correct. No, it's of course not. Yeah. For the record, it's important to state that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, but basically what they were doing is they were staging these provocations uh, by creating the sign of equivalency because it was a way to call out the system under which they were living and many of them languishing. On one level... You were kind of allowed to do whatever the hell you wanted as an unofficial musician, as long as, you know, like KGB agent and like think you were like up to bad news or whatever. You're fine as long as you're not on the shit list. And I mean, that's basically the thing with the Soviet system is that you had a bunch of rules that oftentimes were not enforced. But but when uh, the, the KGB wanted to get rid of someone, you can bet your ass that they will be enforced to the fullest extent of the law. So you never really know. Uh, at one point, you might be targeted. Yeah. Um, so in this episode, I'm going to be editing in a lot of music because there's really no point in trying to like describe the music in depth, like sonically. You just kind of have to listen to it. So if you're listening to this episode at like one and a half times speed or whatever, just uh, adjust your podcast app now. Okay, let's hit it. <laughs> I haven't planned advance what like song goes where, but hopefully you just listen to a good one. And um, hopefully you also understood that uh, the lyrics were very emotional and, you know, like just a lot of anger, frustration, and occasionally they sound like hardcore lyrics, like hardcore punk lyrics. And, you know, sometimes they sound like very dour, you know, very kind of just disappointed in the state of things. And the content of the lyrics is uh, very anti-Soviet that we can actually get into depth in. So... As uh, we said earlier, that uh, some of the lyrics try to equate an equivalency between, you know, the Soviet system and the Nazi system. And that was uh, obviously a theme in some songs, but not every song. So what kind of themes uh, do you hear in uh, his music, uh, 
either of the Sam's. I would say that he was more anti uh, the people running the Soviet Union than against the Soviet system itself. Although he was very inconsistent on this, that's how I describe his beliefs. Uh, describe his beliefs overall. He did very much have a, a lot of fondness for a lot of the Soviet ideals, but the people who ran the system, and especially the KGB, were basically demons to him. Yeah, and in the 90s, he expressed regret that he had expressed uh, his beliefs in such a childish manner about equating the Soviet and the Nazi system. He felt like he had uh, contributed to the mood of the time in a negative manner, and he was trying to make amends for that. Well, here's a question. Besides being against individualism and liking collectivism, what exactly did, did Leitov like about the Soviet system, and what did he dislike about its leadership in the 80s? Uh, well, I would say that he disavowed individualism. He he very much was an individualist. If you look at many of his songs, like, for example, um, I Will Always Be Against, uh, what he liked was revolutionary energy and the idea that the old world is destroyed. And so now you have an opportunity to really create something new and to be infused by this energy that you know, can only exist in this period of time. And he felt that as the Soviet Union matured, it got increasingly bureaucratized, which again would have been his direct experience as a targeted musician in the the Soviet Union. And it was basically just state capitalists running the show, just these guys in suits who really want to maintain the status quo at all costs rather than risking something that uh, that might create substantial change. They just wanted um, everything to be nice and peaceful. That was really the ethos of the Brezhnev era. Yeah, they were kind of, they were Soviet bureaucrats, but in a lot of ways, they were kind of like the small business tyrants we know in America. Yeah, KGB agents as uh, boat dealership guys. <laughs> but yeah, his music was obviously extremely different from the main music that you'd get on the radio in the Soviet Union. Um, I listened to some rock music to just compare, and the stuff in the 60s and 70s, and even up into the 80s, is very reminiscent of, like, 60s American rock music. You know, stuff like Pet Sounds or, you know, derogatory like The Monkees. So it wasn't, like, bad music, but there had been, like, a a lot of advances in like rock music in those yeah. decades in like the West. Yeah. And somehow you just didn't get any of that on the radio and on the Soviet Union. Yeah. I think that's kind of like, that's kind of the image that we have as Westerners of the USSR, that it was like always a couple decades behind the US culture. Yeah. And the content of the lyrics is always like, I mean, the music is always not always upbeat, but like a lot of times it's kind of upbeat and like the lyrics were definitely like positive and, you know, everything was kind of happy. Very apolitical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Apolitical too, and just kind of like, yeah, just going on a date with my sweetheart, that kind of bullshit. And some when, you know, the state of the country is in decay, just listening to that on the radio is obviously very aggravating, which, you know, makes sense why (laughs) punk musicians would become like so popular in the Soviet Union this time. You don't want to listen to songs about how cool Komsomol is all day long. Yeah, just to give you guys a concrete example... Uh, I'm sure you're all aware of that song that was really popular like a decade ago as a result of the meme. The Russian one that's like... Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so the story behind that is actually that originally there were supposed to be lyrics there. 
And it was supposed to be about a cowboy out in the field somewhere in America. And he's uh, just dreaming about going home to his sweetheart and, and finally being with her. And, and so he submitted the lyrics to the Soviet censors and they just kept rejecting it. So at a certain point, he just thought that, that it was pointless to try to navigate the system. And he just released it. Uh, like he kept the melody, but instead of lyrics, he just started trolling. It's a great video. Before we get into like the Soviet bureaucracy, let's get into uh, Igor Letov a little bit. So, 1982, he's 18 years old, going to college in Moscow, drops out after like a few months of um, like not showing up to class. But in Moscow is where he kind of develops his appetite for music and like what kind of music he was into, which ends up being like punk music. In 1984, he moves back to Omsk from Moscow and. Uh, time to clear up some misconceptions about Omsk and Siberia. So Omsk is a large city in Siberia, and most Americans, I feel, think of Siberia as on the very, very far east of uh, Russia. It's more of in the middle. Yeah, it's right in the middle. It is cold and industrial, but still heavily populated. So um, there was the city Omsk, and there's another sister city, Novosibirsk, which is like a nine-hour drive away. And both of those cities have a population of over 1 million people. And um, I looked this up on Wikipedia, and uh, the climate and population line up almost perfectly with uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For Omsk or Novosibirsk? Uh, for both of them. Oh, shit. So uh, think of um, yeah, think of Siberia as like uh, the Midwest of Russia, or the Mideast. Although we should probably highlight, though, it is like... It's really far to get from Omsk to Moscow. Like, apparently it's yeah, a... Yeah, it's a 36-hour drive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, another thing is um, Soviet Union is, like, um, nearly twice as wide as the continental United States. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, so it's yeah, enormous. Still very big. Three-quarters of Eurasia. Yeah, I just um, have this feeling because I know a lot of people only know Siberia as, like, um, you know, some Soviet dissident was exiled to Siberia. Yeah, they assume like, it's, yeah. yeah. And uh, they sort of assume, like, Siberia is the punishment. It's like, the punishment is going to prison. The prison just yeah. happens to be Siberia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the punishment is that it's far away from everyone you know. But there are still people there. Well, Siberia itself is also a bit of a punishment. Like, it's freezing outside for six months of the year. And there's really fuck all to do because, yeah, you're far away from, like, the centers of culture. But is that any different than, like, getting sent to Alcatraz or, like... No, it's much less, I would think. Because, like, there are cities in Siberia. There's not a city in Alcatraz. That's true, yeah. We have island prison. Yeah, I think the Midwest is a good example, especially because I think that when we hear, like Abram was saying, we assume that Siberia is the most remote part of Russia, but that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, people think it's a frozen tundra. Yeah, they think, yeah. yeah. It is very cold in the winters, but again, like, just as cold as Milwaukee, and, you know, people survive in Milwaukee. Do they, though? (laughs) they survive. (laughs) I'm, I'm not saying they enjoy it, but they live it. Um, so yeah, Letov also has an older brother named Sergei, and Sergei himself is a musician, a jazz musician, and this is another good way to uh, clear up some misconceptions. So up until this point, we've discussed uh, Soviet like um, cracking down on musicians, but I want to make it clear that they're cracking down on rock musicians, because Sergei, who was you know a jazz musician and experimental jazz musician doesn't really get into like any kind of trouble with the government as a uh, Igor does 
And my understanding of why this is, is basically the Soviet government was deathly afraid of Beatlemania. They were deathly afraid of a situation like in the West where like bands like the Beatles or um, Elvis Presley or Rolling Stones or, you know, any of those bands became larger than life, like mythical figures and, you know, became like something that the culture could not like uh, rein in. So a big thing that um, the Soviet government was doing is cracking down musicians when they got too big. But, you know, if you were like an underground musician that wasn't really causing any trouble, you were kind of allowed to do whatever the hell you wanted. It's a lot like how every Twitch streamer eventually gets canceled. Mm, exactly. Yeah, and again, we don't really get to the mass persecution stage until like 82, 83, 84. Uh, before that point, it was uh, annoying and some people did get into serious trouble, but mostly it was uh, like it wasn't really a big concern. Yeah, and th that's actually a very good um, point because for the most part, okay, there were definitely just like some soulless bureaucrats in the government, sure. But a lot of the people like in the Ministry of Culture or whatever, or even the Ministry of Composers, were musicians and understood that like a heavy-handed government is just going to stifle creativity and like stifle culture. And they don't want that. They want like a vibrant Soviet culture and like Soviet artists to like um, flourish. So there's like a constant back and forth with like wanting to cultivate a rich culture and like being deathly afraid of an, a specific artist or band just getting too big to like um, control. And that seems to be the story we see all the time in the USSR because there are so many incredible artists who are now like among the greatest in their fields, but they always did have these issues with censorship, you know, from like Shostakovich up all the way to like, uh, what's his name? The director, uh, Tchaikovsky. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'll just give you a quick timeline. So 1980, things open up, you know, you're allowed to like do whatever the hell you want. So rock clubs start popping up in like Moscow and like um, Leningrad, you know, like bands are being formed and, you know, for music and like selling their stuff. And then 84, the fear sets in and then the repression comes and just like, you know, oh my God, we got to like crack down on these guys they are getting too big and, you know. Rock clubs are getting shot down. Bands are like being split apart. Like some people are like being thrown in prison. And then a few years later, 87, the regret sets in. And like, oh my God, what have we done? We shouldn't have done this. And then they open up back again. So it is like a constant back and forth over like how much should we meddle into this? Yeah. And the funny thing is that the Soviet Union actually had its war on drugs around the same time as America was ramping it up. Uh, a lot of these musicians that they got, uh, they arrested under... Article 224, which is uh, possession or selling of drugs. So that was one way that they were able to lock these people up. Or just even like um, band was performing at a venue where people were consuming like drugs and alcohol. Кому вынется, тому избудется. 
Тронет за плечо, поцелует горячо Полетят копейки за пазухи долой Уходит дурачок по лесу Ищет дурачок глупее себя So, yeah, 1984, Letov is uh, living in Omsk. He has a job painting murals of Lenin, like in factory floors and stuff. And um, that's kind of amusing. I don't know. It's a living. Yeah, but he played music on the side. He had a band named Posev, and um, they record some albums. And a lot of that is just lost because, you know, lost in time. But um, some of it still exists. I think some of it's still on YouTube. It's very, you know, it's very early days. They don't have like a, a crack at a songwriting just yet. But it exists out there if you're curious. And around this time is when um, he meets uh, his two lifelong friends, Konstantin Rubinov, uh, nicknamed Kuzma, and uh, Oleg Sudukov. Yeah, by the way, do you want me to mention what Pasiev is, like where the name comes from? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, so this is actually... Uh, going back to the discussion about uh, symbols, uh, Pasiev was actually the name of an organization that was uh, created to a large extent by uh, veterans of Vlasov's army, who was a Soviet general who defected to the Nazis and then continued to fight on their side. And, and Vlasov himself is killed in Prague, I believe, in, in the final days of the war, but uh, the Veterans uh, National Salvation Front, I believe it was called, they started putting out this magazine called Pasiev, which was sort of like fascist corporatist in orientation, and they would also publish a lot of dissident literature. Uh, so it is interesting that uh, Lietov went with this name. This project kind of just fizzles out, but him and Kuzma end up making the new project, which is civil defense, and that becomes, you know, their main project for the rest of their lives. Yeah, that was in the autumn of 84. And um, those two are the main members of civil defense throughout his lifetime, except a brief period where uh, Kuzma was preoccupied. But yeah, those two are the main members. And, you know, there's like people coming in and going, uh, filling in the roles for like other, playing other instruments, but they kind of honestly don't matter. Civil defense becomes like a part of a growing punk scene at this point. So in Novosibirsk and Omsk and some other like outlying cities, there are bands like um, Instructions for Survival, uh, Close Company, um, Bombs. Bombs. Which I think means like a homeless bum or something like that. Oh, it's funny. Not all of them were like great musicians. Most of them weren't. Yeah. Um, Roman Numov who's the, the front man for Instructions for Survival, he describes his music at the period as like mostly copycat stuff and just like just taking riffs that they heard on uh, like Western music and uh, just like putting uh, Soviet lyrics over it. And But the entire scene was like heavily anti-Soviet. Like all these bands were not exactly the same politically as uh, Letov, but all of them hated the repression and just like how shitty the country is at this point. Some of them were not great guys by any stretch of the imagination. So, for example, the lead man in Instruksia Povezhevanyu, uh, Instructions for Survival, was a massive anti-Semite, like to the extent that the band had a song called Kill the Jew. Jesus Christ. 
So the, these were, yeah, the, these were the guys who were like, these were not the guys who would become the Nazis. These were the, these were the genuine Nazis, essentially, in Russia. Yeah, yeah, these are the guys who would become the more monarchists, I would say. These are the guys, so these are the guys, I, I, would, I would, you could argue, these are guys that the Nazis were parodying to the same extent that they were parodying the Communist Party. Um, Roman was, uh, yeah, as you said, front band of his survival. He has like a lot of fondness for uh, the monarchy. <laughs> I think the idea of being, a, of being a punk rock monarchist is so embarrassing. Yeah, fuck, what was his name? Uh, I forget the monarch's name. Um, Nicholas? Yeah, Nicholas. Yeah, Nicholas II. He has like fucking portraits of him in his house and shit. It's like very embarrassing. Oh, what a loser. Just the, the idea of like breaking shit. In, you know, like in, in 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 allegiance to some like inbred hemophiliac little fancy boy. It's hilarious. anti-soviet because they wanted freedom to like make the music they wanted and again like you're not allowed to make money off your music at this point like you're allowed to like distribute it and you know play at shows um i should point out like um shows for these bands aren't playing on a stage they are playing in like a factory floor you know after like everybody's gone home from work or playing in like people's apartments even like like in the kitchen like kitchens in people's apartments or even um like sometimes just like uh i've seen photos of like let off just like playing acoustic guitar on somebody's couch and just like a, a bunch of people like from the neighborhood sitting inside this person's apartment yeah apartment concerts were a big thing in the soviet union um russian sam can you uh tell us a tiny bit about that there's a name for it that i can't pronounce yeah so they're called kvartirniki from the word kvartira which is apartment and it wasn't just music it was also like like in general uh cultural output that was uh not uh, officially recognized like yeah like poetry or like acting and stuff like that yeah yeah lots of poetry lots of uh novel readings but also i'd like to add a small caveat to what you said before about them being anti-soviet because they just wanted to be able to make their music I would say that that definitely was the case for for many of them. But for people like Lieta, for example, he definitely had a larger uh, ideological mission in mind rather than just being able to play his music. He wanted to create a genuinely revolutionary society with like this very uh, uh, this very uh, vital culture that's truly uh, revolutionary rather than just reboiled Western crap from a decade ago. Again, we're gonna play music, but um, I should say I'm not like a 
a big lyrics guy, and obviously I don't understand Russian, so I don't really understand these lyrics. But the instrumentals on like civil defense songs are like beautiful. Like um, I'm a big metal guy, so I really just like listening to um like hardcore instrumentals and really pretty melodies too. In preparing for this episode, I was like linking songs that I liked in um, uh, like a group chat I have with some metal fan friends, and uh, it turns out like a bunch of them you know had no idea about like who this guy is or his backstory, but have listened to his music like in the past and like were fans of it. Yeah, he spans uh, ideology and time. Yeah, there's also an interesting juxtaposition between the quality of the music itself and the sound quality. And this was uh, partially a result of circumstance and partially a result, like an intentional choice, because basically Lietov wanted uh, to keep the snobs away. He he didn't want a bunch of groupies cropping up because, like, it sounds cool or whatever. He wanted people to be into his music because they're down with the message rather than just because it has a pretty melody. And so because of that, uh, these these early albums were recorded on these home uh, recording devices, which were really awful. And he did a bunch of tinkering to intentionally make the sound quality bad. And that was also compounded by the fact that uh, they had no official way of distributing these, of course. So people were making copies of copies of copies of these initial discs. Cassettes. Initial cassettes. Oh, yes, cassettes, exactly. Oh, wow, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, so if you've never tried copying a cassette, there isn't, like, really a way to copy cassettes cleanly. It is, um, you basically have to play one cassette and record another cassette if you have, like, a two-cassette um, stereo. And um, so, yeah, there's, it's a very, very terrible, like, system because just playing a cassette degrades the quality. So every time you, like, play a cassette, it, it sounds worse every time you copy a cassette it sounds much much worse and it's um the best analog that i can come up with is um like seeing like a deep fried meme on twitter or something where it's like screenshotted and cropped and resized and <laughs> uploaded and stuff and then you know eventually you might be seeing it like after it's been shared like 50 times or something and just like so much uh like pixelation and like so much detail is just like gone but this is like that to the extreme. Like think of it as um, every time you copy a cassette, it's like um, deep frying a meme 10 times. Well, that definitely adds to the experience. <laughs> practicing the mother of one of the band members overhears what they're playing and she's like immediately mortified by like their lyrical content and she calls the kgb and reports that um these guys are engaging in anti-soviet activities so a couple of days later kgb agent knocks on letoff's door 
it was like early morning, him and uh, Chris Mo were like hanging out in his place. And they interrogate them. They interrogate other bandmates, his friends, his family, like everybody he knows. And they wanted to put him on trial for like terrorist activities. I think they made up some shit about um, him wanting to plant a bomb at like an oil refinery or something. Which would have been pretty cool. But um, I mean, he didn't. It's just he was just playing music. But, you know, that's the kind of shit they have to come up with to like give this guy in prison. Yeah, no parallels to modern day American society at all. And um, not really knowing what to do to get out of this, he just kind of like writes a note saying, um, I've decided to kill myself, basically. And um, the charges get dropped, but Kuzma gets shipped off to the army, which he wasn't supposed to because he has like a heart condition, but he gets shipped off to the army. And um, because he had written this letter, Letov is now thrown into a psychiatric facility. And he was there for uh, three months, I think. And um, how did he get out, Russian Sam? So Lyotov's brother, uh, Sergei, um, as I said, this was uh, the beginning of 87. So Perestroika had officially started. And Sergei found out that the best way to get Lyotov out of the psychiatric hospital was not to do a frontal assault per se, but rather to do it in this really backhanded way where he was going around and talking to his friends and he was like, oh yeah, if um, if they don't release my brother, then I'm going to call all of these Western journalists and hold a press conference and I'm going to tell them that Perestroika is a sham, that everything is staying the same way as it was, there's no real change, etc. And shortly after that, uh, Yegor is finally released. And this event, these few months in the psychiatric ward, basically are, well, I think the first thing that elevate him from just a regular musician to like, a sort of mythical figure on his own right. Because in interviews from now on, this is like a topic that comes up a lot. Whenever like he's written about or like a, there's a video about him or even like in his Wikipedia article or anything, this instance is like mentioned. Like even in researching this, I was like reading books about like other things and like he's there for like three sentences and one of those sentences is about his stay in the psychiatric ward. I'll just read a couple of quotes about what he says about his time there. I got enhanced support and received antipsychotics. These are suppressive drugs that make a moron out of a person. The effect is similar to a lobotomy. A person becomes soft, complacent, and broken after the treatment. I realized at some point that I had to create not to go crazy. I walked and composed all day, wrote stories and poems. Every day that Oleg Dugov came to me, I gave him through the bars everything that I wrote. Yeah, like, if you read that in interviews, like, a bunch of times, you really kind of that really elevates him to like more than just like a, a musician who is like rebelling. Like this is somebody who actually faces repression and faces traumatizing repression for, for most people. Yeah, but on the other hand, he felt that this experience really added to his own worth as an artist. Builds character. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like he has, I mean, in another interview, he says that uh, in a certain way, yeah, Yes, as in I did enjoy my time there because it was the first time that I learned what I was capable of. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I was definitely afraid because there was a certain mythology surrounding the KGB that they'll pump you full of truth serum and you'll sing like a bird. In the hospital, they pump me full of antipsychotics and I understood that there's a certain men mental block that you can put in. I understood that it's bad for the mind, bad for all of that. I even went blind for a bit when they pumped me full of a, a new PTO. I was blind for about four hours. It was white darkness. That's when I understood that I could put in a mental block and it'll be okay. After that, I began to write very actively and began to write more songs. 
the Dostoevsky from before, before he stood on the hangman's platform with the bag over his head and the noose around his neck, and, and then he was pardoned. And then you had a new period, and that's when he began to write uh, the, uh, the brothers Karamazov and whatnot. This is what happened to me, so I'm thankful for this time. Just from that quote, you get that he was in the hospital, he was pumped up full of drugs, he almost went blind, he almost went crazy. He even quotes Dostoevsky, like he's really building this up. And um, I mean, I'm not saying like, obviously it's all true, but like if you're reading this and you're like just kind of a casual fan of this music, you're just like, holy shit, like this is, this guy's the real deal. Like this is... And I think it's, it's kind of interesting that, you know, Dostoevsky himself spent a few months in like a Tsarist era gulag, which I'm sure probably he might have seen as some kind of like a similar experience. Yeah, I believe um, Dostoevsky was his favorite author at this point. Dostoevsky, uh, he comes up a lot in uh, Lithov statements. There's like another thing that we'll get to in a bit. This is the main one that really elevates him like beyond just a casual musician in people's minds. Uh, just another quote about his uh, time immediately after. He says, We were untouchables in Omsk. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with us. They were all afraid. And from this time, I understood that I need to do everything myself. I got the equipment on the down low from people who weren't afraid. Tape players, a microphone, and so on. They said to me, we won't play with you but you're on your own. And immediately after getting out, well, not immediately, but in the years after getting out, he records many, many albums. Like um, in 87, he records five civil defense albums. You know, if you're reading these uh, interviews and you're saying, oh yeah, I was in psych ward. And then when I got out, like nobody wanted to do anything with me. And I had to record these five albums on my own, you know, just uh, playing each instrument and then, you know, mixing the tracks together by, by myself. That's like, again really elevates him beyond like any casual musician. Yeah, he was very much a do-it-yourself type of guy. And of course, you know, a lot of do-it-yourself guys, their music just isn't that excellent, honestly. But like in this case, you know, it's like very good music. And also this backstory on top of it, just like really, this is why he was basically the most famous underground punk musician of this period. But um, I mean, we can't really blame the mother for like calling the KGB on him because everybody was like extremely afraid of the KGB. You know, I'm pretty sure her thinking was the KGB is going to find out about this and put all of them in prison. So if I do something now, maybe I can save my son. Even he says he was afraid like of the KGB and pop you up full of a uh, truth serum. But after that experience and realizing that they don't have like magical powers, I think that's what really makes him get much more serious about his music. So he records five albums in 87, three in 88, and six in 1989. Yeah, but it should be noted that these numbers are just for the output of Grzdanska Barona. He was also involved in many, many different side projects. And yeah. So in the months immediately after getting out of the psych ward, he's obviously, he doesn't have any of his old crew because they all had to sign like um, papers with the KGB saying they would never associate with him again. But he was still performing shows in people's apartments. You know, there's photos of him in this time, you know, performing apartments. He also found a new crew where he performed a little bit of music with. And um, they record uh, a couple of albums. One of the albums was named Hospital, where they um, play some of the music of that album at the uh, Novospiersk Music Festival, which uh, occurs in April 1997. So that's 13 months after he is uh, let from, from the psych ward. So Novospiersk Music Festival, let's get into that a bit. Um, as I said earlier, you know, there was repression in like 84 and then there was regret a few years later. And this is a result of that regret where 
we're opening up again, we're allowed to have a music festival, and all these unofficial bands that were regulated to the sidelines level now are actually allowed to perform on stage for the first time in their uh, music careers. So it was a big deal, but of course, they were still ha- there was still uh, the bureaucracy like telling them what they could and couldn't uh, perform. And a couple of bands at the closing of uh, this festival were basically denied by the bureaucracy. So somebody approaches Letov and says, hey, come on, you should uh, perform this music festival. Uh, you and Civil Defense perform. And not realizing that uh, Kuzma is like, still in the army at this point, so yeah, Civil yeah. Defense barely exists. But, you know, he does have these couple of guys that he's performing with. You know, they have uh, their album Hospital that they have songs from. So they, you know, say, okay, yeah, we're Civil Defense. Let's play. And, um, yeah, closing out the show, they get up on stage. They're all made up. They have a sort of not really corpse paint, but, you know, that kind of like metal paint where um, they paint their faces white and then they add like black eyeliner and stuff. Looks nice. But, yeah, get up on stage. Turn up the guitars and uh, introduce themselves as Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Honestly, dudes rock. This music from this band still kind of exists. I'll link a couple of songs in the show notes. Adolf Hitler, they would they would have called it. Adolf Hitler. The lyrics are also on um, Genius.com. And uh, earlier we said uh, they wanted to um, show an equivalency between the Nazis and the Soviet Union, and it's like. Once you read those lyrics, it's just like, no, they, they're just fucking around. Like, this is completely meaningless bullshit. No, yeah, this is, this is people trying to be very provocative. And it was very provocative. It's also worth noting, there are still, at, like, at, there are still veterans of the Great Patriotic War alive at this point. Like, there are still people who fought in Stalingrad. Very, very, very many. Like, you know, a huge percent of the population were veterans. Yeah, and everyone had had lost an uncle or a brother or a father or a sister. Like basically, there was no family left unaffected from the war. It was only it was only forty years later. It's an insanely provocative thing to do. I should say a big thing about these festivals or just like live shows is KGB agents are like walking up and down the aisles and like making sure people don't go like stand up on stage, go to nuts. It's like again, like they're afraid of Beatlemania. You're not even allowed to like stand up and like go nuts at a music concert so yeah these guys on stage introduce themselves as adolf hitler playing music and you know people in the audience are very unsure of what to do now um i think eventually i just kind of like rage against it because yeah as we say like probably they realize at this point oh shit my uncle died in uh, world war ii and uh this is offensive <laughs> Yeah, there's this really great moment when they finish their set when the festival organizer gets on stage and he basically says, hey, what the fuck are you doing? You know that there are people who are supposed to play after you, right? uh, You're going to ruin it for everyone else. Like, fuck off, get off stage. Take it, my God.
This is again another uh, thing that elevates him to mythical status. Is uh, he did this stunt, and of course, the KGB was not too pleased with this. By some miracle, he was able to get back to Omsk from Novosibirsk without getting arrested immediately. Which is honestly insane. But he understood that like the KGB is coming for him at like any second now. So took his shit, like whatever money he had. He took uh, this woman named Yanka, we'll get into in a bit. And uh, they just went around the Soviet Union for like a year. Yeah. Like fugitives, you know, playing out wherever they could. Yeah, and that's really when Lyotov uh, flew to stardom because that's when people started uh, really distributing his uh, tapes because, like, like, aside from the fact that the music itself is great, there is now this very powerful aura around this man as in, like, oh, who was this brave guy who just uh, dared to do something like this at a time when... He had already been uh, in a psychiatric hospital. Like, he could very easily land there again, and yet he still felt bold enough to actually do this. Yeah, and this was 30 months after he got out. So, again, he was, uh, it didn't take very long for him to uh, just forget all about that and just decide to, like, be a punk again. But, yeah, I mean, uh, I'll quote him from his experience in this period. He says, they wanted to put me in a psychiatric hospital a second time, and Yank and I were on the wanted list. We were on the run until December 87. Traveled all over the country, left among KPs, sang songs on the roads, ate what God sent, and stole food from bazaars. So I had the experience of a wandering life in all its glory. Wherever we lived, in basements, abandoned carriages, and attics. In the end, thanks to the efforts of my parents, the search was stopped and I was left alone. Moreover, a new stage of perestroika began, and no one needed dissidents anymore. In a way, you could say that he was a wandering mendicant of sorts. I don't have the list of where he went in front of me, but he went as far as um, Ukraine. And um, so, yeah, he traveled very far from uh, his home in uh, Siberia. Yeah, he went all over the country to Moscow, St. Petersburg, uh, Tallinn. Uh, yeah, yeah, all over the Baltics, uh, Ukraine, you name it. When he gets back after this uh, search for him ends, he starts a side project that was him and Kuzma and their good friend Oleg Sudukov, who was just a friend at this point, but now he's a musician collaborator. And they released 14 albums in three years. So they record two in 88 and 10 in 89 and two in 90. So that's 31 albums between, you know, 1985 and 1990 for civil defense and communism. And again, it's not even 30 at this point. So... Any uh, 20-somethings listening to this, you too can record 50 full-length albums before you hit 30. <laughs> yeah, just do lots of drugs, get fucked up, get arrested, and the inspiration will come to you. There was a guy who did release a song while he was um, on the run from the law. It was a shitty song. That's true. So th 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 that's actually a really good point. So th th that's, that's, yeah, that's the best way to think of Leitov. He's not like a fascist or whatever. He's just the Russian version of Teke. <laughs>
So you mentioned Bianca briefly. Let's、uh, get a little bit into her. She's not very important to our overall national Bolshevik story that we're doing, but she is a very good musician and very important to Leitov as a person. And I want to include a bunch of her songs in、um, this episode's edit. If you've seen Adam Curtis's hypernormalization, you've heard one of her songs. Oh, cool! If you've visited、uh, Massive Attack in concert, you might have heard one of her songs. She is very famous、um, in like a particular scene, and that is because her music is actually quite good. And also, she died very young. And I believe she had、uh, no eyebrows, which was a cool look. It adds to the mystique. Yeah, <laughs> she's a Siberian punk singer. She was. Not really involved in the Novosibirsk punk scene, but she was interested in it, and she meets Letov at the Novosibirsk music festival. I guess she liked him so much that she decided to run away with him, like after meeting him for a day and live、uh, as the nomad life for a year. And they never officially get married, but in interviews he says that they were essentially married, just you know, not officially. Yeah, they were together up until her death in 1991, where she dies at age 24, tragically. She's a great musician. She's arguably one of the most talented musicians from this punk scene. Her and Letov. She doesn't have like as big as a catalog as he does, but she has a couple of like、um, solo albums are like worth listening to. And she also、um, performs vocals on、um, some communist tracks.、Uh, communism being the name of a band, not communist tracks, as in. Yeah, sorry. But yeah, I will link some、uh, of her music in、uh, the show notes. Really delved into like specific lyrics so far. Let's um try get into that right now. So, is there a particular song you guys want to discuss? Yes, I want to talk about um everything's going according to plan or Russian Sam pronounces for me, please. This is a song that um is kind of deeply ironic. It's it, let's just, uh he thinks from the point of view of an ordinary Soviet man, kind of talking about the state of the society at the time the song was written, nineteen eighty eight. That is, this song was written not from my perspective, but from the perspective of a certain person who's not just tired. Let's say he comes home and starts banging on his table with his fist and sing what comes to mind, and the song is just that. He means that、uh, in terms of the uh, political, uh, the, the political and economic state of the society at the time, essentially. Yeah, the idea for the song came to him while he was watching、uh, television one evening in a really crappy mood, and he was just thinking about what. Uh, a normie would be thinking for all intents and purposes, and the song is just that. It is from that perspective. <laughs> 
from the audio it's very like grating and angry and bitter and you can hear that in his speech even though you don't under if you even if you don't understand Russian which I don't for the record um, but he basically talks about everything going according to plan in a very kind of sarcastic bitter way he said sorry a verse I'd like, like to read and they fed my wife to the crowds with the fist of the world they trampled in her chest with worldwide liberty they tore her flesh so bury her in Christ, and everything shall go according to plan. Only our grandfather Lenin was a good leader. All the other ones are such shit. All the other ones are enemies and morons. Over bloody Russia falls a torrent of, slow, of snow. Over the homeland, the land of our fathers, an insane snow is fa- falling. So it's... it's ob- it is, only Lenin was a good leader. Everyone else is so full of shit. Everything fucking sucks now. But it, it's not questioning the fundamentals of the system, just the people r- running it. But it's just very bitter and angry. There's a couple of mentions of Lenin throughout his songs that I've heard. And it does feel like, yeah, he has a fondness for Lenin. And as uh, we've discussed previously in the episode, he is not an anti-communist. He's very much a communist and a leftist and has fondness for like the Russian Revolution and the Socialist Revolution in general, but very dissatisfied with the country. I would say that he was more opposed to the bureaucratic state as it existed than the idea of the Soviet system. Yeah, exactly. But let me get more into the weeds here, onto like what this was actually like on a personal scale. So my family is from there, both my parents uh, were born and raised there and educated there. And basically, like imagine the stuff that we hear in school about uh, George Washington cutting down a cherry tree and talking about how uh, he admitted to it because he could tell no lie. Like, that's basically what uh, the Soviet education system was giving to kids. And granted, they grew out of the Uncle Lenin stuff as they got older. But nevertheless, like, this was something that was very much shoved down their throat. Like, if you went to university, you had to take courses in Marxism-Leninism, for example, and you had to read a lot of Lenin. So in this environment where you're not really doing it because you want to do it, but rather because it's, it's mandated, you're obviously going to come out of this with a very cynical attitude. Yeah. Although I will say people should read Lenin. Just, you should read it. Oh, yes, absolutely. You should. You should. But when a system gets ossified and no one really believes in anything anymore and they're just going through the motions, 
there's going to be a lot of uh, discontent. It's uh, this song is part of what got me into uh, Grob about probably I'd say early on in quarantine, I guess, and somewhere around that era, early 2020. Was there? I kind of I listened and I looked up the lyrics and lyrics translate, and you know started getting into a bit of an obsession about this stuff, and. I kind of realized along the way that part of that was because there is a similar feeling of decay, I think, in American society today and the American state also. Uh, not exactly the same as the Brezhnev era, Soviet Union, or the uh, Gorby era, I guess it's the two, but kind of just there is a general feeling of decay and things are getting shittier and people don't actually believe in these institutions anymore. Uh, I, and I kind of connected with that in his music a lot. And I think that's why, also, that is still relevant in Russia today, even if it's under a very different ruling system, which is why his music is still relevant in Russia today. Uh, when we get communism, it'll be fucking great. It will come soon. We just got to wait. Everything will be free there. It'll be like we're high. We probably won't even have to die. I woke up in the middle of the night and understood that everything is going according to plan. And, and this really captures the atmosphere because these people had grown up hearing that they're going to reach communism within their lifetime. Uh, Khrushchev, rather infamously in the 50s, said that communism would be constructed within 30 years. And so so 30 years came and went, and things just seemed to be getting shittier. So, so there were a lot of jokes going around. He, he, he was trying. And of course, the song came out in 88, so Soviet Union falls apart in just like a couple of years. And even when that happens, a lot of people weren't excited, but a lot of people kind of didn't give a shit, honestly. Well, I would say that it was a very mixed feeling because on the one hand, like, it's important to understand that people on the ground absolutely did not want the dissolution of the Soviet Union. This is something that was wanted by the Communist Party elites because they realized that without the Soviet system in place, they would be able to get a lot richer and they'd be able to buy as many bananas and jeans as they wanted. They'd be able to get those fancy Mercedes. And they did. They, they were able to become as, after the fall of the destruction of the Soviet Union, they were able to become as rich as their American and European counterparts. Yeah. No, well, famously, uh, yeah, Gorbachev sold out the USSR for Pizza Hut. Yeah. I mean, a fucking Aliyev in, or rather Aliyev's father in Azerbaijan was a KGB guy. And yeah, lots of KGB guys everywhere. Oh, yeah, no, the KGB guys played a huge role in the breakup of the Union. It's almost like security services tend to uh, undermine the state sometimes. We would never have any other examples of that. So, again, the people on the ground did not want the free market hell that came afterwards. Their idea was more of a socialism with the human face, which is also something that Gorbachev was presenting as what uh, Perestroika would bring. Like, the idea wasn't that, oh, uh, all of the national assets will be liquidated and your savings will be destroyed by inflation. The idea was, we're going to have some reforms, we're going to have some more freedom of expression, we're going to have more active anti-corruption measures so that uh, these factory bosses and party leaders weren't able to steal as much, and then we can finally be a healthy, prosperous society on, on the path to development of socialism. It's also worth noting that at, the, at this point, China is doing its own reform thing, and people in the Soviet Union are watching that and watching this happen in other places. So that is like, that is part of the backdrop this is against. Yeah, China kept uh, the political reform aspect to a minimum and just focused on free market reforms. And which one is still around today? The one that shouldn't be. Mm, I'm going to disagree with you there. 
I mean, the one that should be around is、uh, Yugoslavia, but that's unfortunate. They should all be around. Hey, Yugoslavia was cool too. No hate. I'll always have a soft spot for Tito, even if I shouldn't. В горле сопятком я воспоминаний. Моя оборона солнечный зайчик стеклянного глаза. Моя оборона траурный мячик телепала мира. Траурный мячик тяжелый. Ликует картонный набат. Кому нужен лом тихий ульского неба? Твоя оборона, солнечный зайчик из зрячего мира. This is a song called "Моя оборона," which translates to "My defense." Came out in 1989, and Liam, why don't you read us a verse from that one? All right. The plastic world has won. The mold turned out to be stronger. The last ship has gone cold. The last flashlight is tired, and clumps of memory are stuck in my throat. So here we go. This idea of of the plastic world, of an artificial world, is something that Lietov keeps coming back to. This idea of this ossified Soviet bureaucracy that keeps alive. Uh, the symbols of the revolutionary Soviet legacy, while at the same time being just these uh, decrepit old guys who really don't give a shit and who just want to、uh, live a good life without necessarily delivering on their promises to the wider population. That's interesting because the way I would have read that is when he says the plastic world has won, I would assume America because that is. I mean, even Americans call America the plastic world. He very much saw America and the late USSR as two sides of the same coin. Yeah, yeah. Let me just read this quote from another interview he gave. We were not at war with Soviet power per se. We fought against the manifestation of it, which existed at the moment. It had nothing to do with communism. That is, the Brezhnevite regime had nothing to do with communism. This was state capitalism, the same mafia. These are the same people. He's not wrong about the same people being in power. I mean, like. The last guy in charge of the Kazakh SSR was Nazarbayev, who was the president of fucking Kazakhstan until like I don't know three years ago. Nazarbayev, who was you know the, I mean, oh, and at country after country, it's the people who were presided who had power at the end of the union who retained power, political power at least, and that is something to be grappled with. Yeah, the party by this point was very much rotten. Like by the time that you got to the higher echelons, like first of all, people weren't joining out of conviction in communism. They were joining to get special privileges and goodies, and because for some occupations you needed to be a party member. We could talk about music all day, but I think we're gonna leave it here. Obviously, probably listen to a lot of music already, edited out through this episode, and we'll have a, a link to all of those in the show description. But this concludes the music portion of、uh, this episode. Letov and civil defense continue on like, until he dies in two thousand eight. But by ninety, his、uh, creative peak is over. They didn't put out 
any music between 91 and 97. Letov has um, his own solo projects at that period, but he wasn't making punk music anymore. It's more like folk, psychedelic-inspired music, you know, much more laid back. It wasn't like um, the same energy that you've probably heard through the, throughout this episode. Yeah, and Gros- he actually dissolved Grozdanska Barona in 1990 because he felt that it had gotten too commercialized and he felt that that very much went against the spirit of his music, that he, that he didn't want to just be a product. He wanted to be something that people deeply feel. And then uh, it would reunite in 1993, uh, from which point uh, Lyotov would get really active in politics. And at that point, he saw it very much as a political vehicle, as something that would allow him to distribute his ideology on a much wider scale than just like writing articles or going to demonstrations in itself would be able to. In between uh, dissolving civil defense and then getting back together, the Soviet Union collapsed. And it was a big thing. It was on the news. thing was like on CNN and shit. So um, we're not going to go too deeply in what happened there. Read a book, I guess. Or listen to the Radio Warner episode. Yeah, but again, Soviet Union bands and a bunch of punk bands from the scene that we mentioned previous kind of go their own separate ways because, you know, the markets were finally open up. So a lot of people decided to just go into business and, you know, they had mixed success. Honestly, most Soviet people had mixed success because, you know, I've, I've heard that People who were over 40 or over 50 when uh, the Soviet Union collapsed just never got accustomed to uh, the new capitalist system. I would say that most people were just thoroughly fucked. Like, like their savings were liquidated. They lost their jobs. It was a hellscape. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a societal collapse. Instructions for Survival, they were one of the bands that broke up to pursue a life in business. And they were also a band that failed miserably and essentially just reformed the band as a way to like make money just doing you know what they knew which is be musicians and in 1993 they team up with uh letov and civil defense as part of his you know more political experiments and they form a concert or you know like a touring concert called russian breakthrough and this concert would eventually be the culture wing of the national bolshevik party so before we get into that clear up a couple of misconceptions. So in researching for this episode, and you know, if you look up the Wikipedia about the National Bolsheviks, you will see a couple of things. You'll see the list of founders, which are Edward Lumanov, Alexander Dugan, and Igor Letov. And then when you go deep into it, it says um, Letov was given the Nazbol membership card number four signed by Edward Lumanov. You know, thinking, um, well, how does that work? Was he like a founder? Was he a founding member? Like, what's the deal there? So he was a founding member, but like I said at the top of the episode, he was likely the most consequential founder because the idea to form a party that combines the extreme right and left, that was the idea of Lomonov and Dugin. The idea to name it the National Bolsheviks, that was the idea of Dugin. The idea to form a punk newspaper called the Monka that was like a, another mix of the two, but I think that was mostly Lomanov, if we're going to read between the lines. And the idea to get Letov and the punk scene involved was the idea of a third guy who was a friend of Lomanov, but Lomanov is the one who did it. So this political project 
was already an idea that existed and was developed by these two guys, Lomonov and Dugin. What Letov provided to the project was membership, because the overwhelming majority of members to the Nazbols in the first few years were fans of Letov, and they knew about the Nazbols because in this Russian breakthrough concert scene, every time Letov and Civil Defense performed, they had the banner of the uh, National Bolsheviks in the back, and that's really what drove membership. Oh, and one last thing. The logo, the uh, famous Nazbo logo, that was a design somebody made for um, well, uh, one of Lomonov's books, and he oh, just decided really? to reuse that as uh, the flag for uh, the National Bolsheviks. <laughs> oh, and uh, one last thing is, um, if you've seen photos of the Nazbols, they normally dress in all black. Yeah. And that came from Letov. I think... Um, the punk influence. Yeah. One time, Lemonov just... Or somebody just asked Letov why he always dresses in all black and just like... I don't know. It's like a cheap... Or rather, like cheap clothes or whatever. And then Lemonov had the idea to make that the official uniform of the National Bolshevik Party. So that is another one of uh, his main contributions to the party. So I mentioned Alexander Dugan. Um... He is the philosopher king of the National Bolshevik Party, and he's really the one who had the idea of, like, we need to get these extremists to, like, uh, form the party base. But he's also the most boring, honestly. So we're probably not going to discuss him very much. We're really going to discuss is Lomonov, because he is the cultural influence of the party, you know. He's the one who made it a punk party. He's the one who made the uh, the National Bolshevik Party newspaper, Lamonka, which is a, a very punk newspaper, and a newspaper that Letov himself is not a huge fan of. I think in one, uh, I was reading a Lomonov's live journal, because he had one of those. He's a very prolific blogger, but in his uh, live journal, he re- recounts uh, a time in the early days where um, Letov was displeased with uh, the spelling mistakes in Lamonka and saying, my fans, they're uh, smart people. They're not going to put up with the shit. <laughs> <laughs> so an early party split. And also like another split is, um, again, Letov is a communist and also literally fascists were like marching in the streets right beside him. And he was very uncomfortable with that for quite a while. Well, he started calling himself a fascist at that point, actually. Oh, really? This is an interesting thing. I mean, we'll, I want to get into that interview in just a second, but my impression is that at no point was Letov fully on board with this political project, but he made an effort to say he was on board in every single interview. But, you know, let's read uh, some of his interviews. Sam, can you uh, read that part? And yeah, all these interviews are going to be linked in the show notes below. You're often associated with the fascists. Why is that? Because, if we're being honest, that's what we are. I consider us to be the communal fascists. We present the most radical wing of the opposition. We are the Red Browns. Fascism is a very strong concept. It has not taken root as an ideology in the minds of the masses, because what is fascism? In the public's consciousness, it is terror, no? No, not terror. Fascism is binding together. It is the same thing as communism. It is the primacy of society or the collective over the individual, everything we've always done. Me, personally, I am not an individualist, nor am I an egoist. What they did in Germany, pardon me, was not the result of ideology, but of their national culture. Because an idea introduced somewhere is added to the culture of that place, if one was to condemn fascism, then one must also condemn Christianity because it, it birthed the Inquisition, the Reconquista, and so on. Are you a nationalist? Yes, I am a Soviet nationalist. A Soviet nationalist? 
Yes, I think that over the 70 years of Soviet rule, a new nation emerged, the Soviet nation and the Soviet people. Everyone is now so mixed together that it is impossible to speak of nationalism. On my mother's side, I am, defended, I am descended from Cossacks, and on my father's side, I am a Buryat, the native son of the poorest peasants of the towns of the Urals. You get the idea. This is something that's very hard to parse, because I'm just going to say this. I do not think you should take this as face value as like what he genuinely believes. Because on one hand, he is a punk. A troll. He is the guy who was the head of the band, Adolf Hitler, you know? So there is a level of punk irony to him and to the National Bolshevik Party in general. And of course, we understand from his the contents of his lyrics that he is a genuine communist. So I'm pretty sure he's saying he's a fascist in this instance, either as shock value or because, you know, the mastermind Dugan basically just wrote some shit up and gave it to him just like, here's the party line. This is what you're going to be saying in interviews from now on. I think that's part of it. But also there was the element of the fact that in the other interview, he says that when the house is burning, uh, the first thing you got to do is put out the fire. So essentially, he just wanted to create this image of unity between the communists and the fascists so they could get to the task at hand. And then later down the line, when the biggest threat is defeated, then they can settle matters between them. Yeah. And I, as we said earlier, uh, Roman Numov of the band uh, Instructions for Survival, he himself was like a very right-wing reactionary guy. And he's also one of the co-founders of the um, Russian Breakthrough Concert Movement. Letov is very comfortable with like having you know more right-wing people just be part of whatever political project he's doing as long as it it's against you know the bullshit the government is doing and not really of um are there any, i mean well they killed uh, all his kids so never mind i guess that's impossible there are uh, descendants of the romanov dynasty and they fight amongst themselves who is the legitimate heir to the throne <laughs> yeah there's some who, who claim yeah i mean they intermarried with everyone in europe when you're that inbred and that intermarried with the rest of the European um, royal families, there's always some descendant somewhere. But really, I mean, what I'm trying to say is there is really no possibility of um, Roman Numov getting his uh, monarchy reinstated. So it's perfectly fine to uh, like have a political concert movement with him because, you know, really what they're trying to do is just like resist capitalism. They're not really trying to do anything beyond that. Although the, the, the trajectory of the movement shows you how well that works out. Yeah. I mean, I should say, the Russian Breakthrough Movement, this is Letov's idea. And basically, his entire idea was a protest concert, right? Like, um, just protest capitalism, basically. He didn't really have any political ambitions, or he had, like, political ideas in mind, but he didn't have, like, very concrete ambitions. That came from Lomonov and Dugin, who had this political party, and basically said, your protest movement concert shit should be part of this political party because then, you know, people watching the concerts and uh, feeling the energy will join the party and then that party will go on to attempt to, like, hold actual political power in the system. And it doesn't actually happen, but, I mean, it's a good try. It's a very interesting episode of recent history, either way, whatever you think about it. And what do we think of this uh, Red-Brown Alliance thing in general? Like, how do we... Obviously, it doesn't work out here, but do we hold any ideas that maybe this could work out in some fashion no but it's very funny oh yeah no no, no it's bullshit i think that it's clear that the the nosbols were basically not a serious political movement honestly i think they had serious political motivations and energies but it really seems like that their whole thing was just shock value beyond any actual attempt to unite 
fascism with communism. Yes and no. I mean, they did actually become powerful in the streets in like the uh, late aughts and early tens Russia. Like they in the like 10, 2010, 2011. Right. But, but were they actually trying to impose any kind of fascist order? Where like it, it seems like I don't think they could have imposed anything, honestly. Mm-hmm. It was kind of that there was just a huge vacuum and they were the only people there to fill it, kind of. Who weren't just complete, you know, I mean, there's dweebs like Navalny and other people like that. Although he was on the nationalist side then, especially. Well, well here's a question. Well, well, here's something that I really get. In the landscape of, like, Russian politics in the early 90s, how important were the Nazis really? Were they more prominent than the communists? Were they more prominent than, like, the actual fascist Nazis on the street? The KPRF was the second biggest party. Yeah. But the idea was more to be a sort of cultural vanguard rather than to actually directly seize power. And that's actually why Dugin uh, split with the party, because he wanted uh, to work behind the scenes to actually have influence rather than uh, doing all this uh, performative street stuff and just harassing government ministers. Yeah, no, Dugan is an actual right-wing ideologue, and he didn't, like, this was an art project, essentially, in his eyes especially. I should say, if you look up Alexander Dugan on Wikipedia, his Wikipedia page says, a featured article in fascism. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. But if you look at his Russian article, because, you know, there's a huge stigma against calling people fascists there, um, that's not there. But the English editors of Wikipedia certainly think he's a fascist. I think he's right about the Lithuanian problem. <laughs> We're not going to get into that this episode. Okay. This is my view of a uh, Red-Brown Alliance stuff is... Where he says in the interview, I am a Soviet nationalist. I am not an ethnic nationalist, essentially. And that's the fundamental problem with the left-wing attempt at nationalism is so often than not, there is a ethnicity attached to the idea of the country. And then that leads to negative things. Like, yeah, absolutely. And, and, which, and of which there was plenty of in Russia, especially like there, there was a an enormous problem of Russian chauvinism within the, the Communist Party. The idea of this alliance was to tear down the edifice of the Russian capitalist state, as I said before, and then from there to work towards your own goal. Uh, a reading between the lines of what Lyotov says in that other uh, interview uh, about uh, this red-brown alliance, when your house is on fire, the first thing you do is put it out. Well, like the implication there is that there's going to be a civil war after this government is gone, and that's when we really settle the differences between ourselves. But of course, if you know that's always on your mind, then there's a very good chance that people are going to jump the gun and try to settle those differences before civil war or the revolution happens. Also, civil war in Russia in the 90s was not unthinkable. Certainly after 93. No, especially with like yeah, tanks in the streets. You know, in the stopping the attempted. Uh, uh, KGB coup, and I'm tanks in the streets in fucking '93, and the the you know the the successful coup, the Yeltsin coup, and I mean civil wars in many surrounded countries, Tajikistan, for example. Yeah, yeah, and in in a sense, there arguably was because you could say that what was going on uh, in Chechnya, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, of course, there no, there was Chechnya. I mean, and there were other separatist movements that didn't get nearly as far. Of course, there was. Yeah, and of course, all of Yugoslavia's shit was going down. Yeah, no, it's a very, there was, it was very unstable. It took really until Putin to build something stable in the new Russia. Not good, but stable. At least as stable as an inherently unstable system like capitalism can be. Managed. 
As stable as in you won't wake up one morning and find out that your bank account is basically $5 when you had $5,000 before. Yes, exactly. The currency has worth. Has value. The currency has value. The trains run on time, kind of. Well, the Moscow Metro trains, uh, to their credit, do run on time. Very punctual. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. And stunning stations. sure how to translate ass idiomatically into English in that context. Like, to be in the ass is to be fucked. Or, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the songs. We're in a deep ass. That's uh, the second song of Necrophilia. Um, this is one of the most tragic songs I have ever, uh, I ever composed. The song is about how the, co- the homeland rises from its knees, which in fact does not exist, which not only is not rising from its knees, but which gets deeper and deeper into an unprecedented ass of a situation, tighter and all the more, hope- all the more hopeless. When a handful of people were firing back while they were being hit by tank shells, everyone thought that we would win. The albums are about this, in fact. When a person is completely lost, he sings of how he won and wins. The people, it seems to me, still do not understand anything. Yeah, so this song, uh, Rodina, was written in November of 1993 when uh, uh, the coup that Yeltsin launched happened in October. So this was very much an immediate reaction. And what he's talking about there is how... uh, uh, the Russian parliament re- literally got shelled with uh, tanks, and, and there were snipers t- targeting people uh, on the street, just killing random people. Uh, uh, it was a coup. It was an actual coup. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. But again, we won't go too deep into it. Just listen to the Radio War Nerd episodes on it to really hear the episode, uh, to hear this episode done historic justice. So the song itself, uh, Liam, would you do the honors? I see my motherland rising up from its knees. I see my motherland rising from the ashes. I hear my great motherland singing. My motherland is once again rising up from its knees. My epic nation is unbending its back. Our wrathful power is moving apart the walls. The sun calls us to follow it on campaign against deadly cold, against pitch black night. Uh, I'm not very good at uh, poems. So my translation is probably not as, it doesn't convey the full beauty. Well, we can see. No, it's fine, and we can see that it's 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 a it's very a clear nationalistic statement, which is why it's quite interesting that the nationalism, as we've talked about, is not Russian nationalism but Soviet. He says it at the um, in many verses of the song, and I and I think this this is this is really this is really what separates him from other people who are associated with the Nazi movement, and by other people, I mean Dugan. Honestly, when country's falling apart i feel like everybody's a patriot because you know it's one thing to say your country's shit when it is shit but it's another thing when like the country's actually falling apart right in front of you and just like oh my god no i 
I actually do love this country. As terrible as it is to live here, I do love this country and I do want a better future for it. And just seeing like all that hope just disintegrate in front of you. Yeah, the I mean, the last verse of the song is... Let me just read it real quick. I see my motherland rising from its knees. I see my motherland rising from the ashes. My motherland fiercely blazes inside me. I hear my Soviet motherland sing. So you can hear my Soviet motherland. It's very specifically his Soviet motherland. He's from Siberia, and Siberia borders Kazakhstan. And at this time, Kazakhstan is a separate country. Yeah, and in fact, he was born in Kazakhstan. But yeah, he was born in a place that is no longer his country, and that's going to be... So while he was definitely, in my opinion, the most consequential member, and this political project probably would have fallen apart without his input, because I really don't see any way for national Bolsheviks of just Dugin and Lomilov to get anywhere near the kind of membership they would need to continue doing this thing for however many years they did it. But, you know, after that, after being so important in a the founding of this party, he decides to leave after a few years because he decides to endorse the communist candidate and the national Bolsheviks uh, go a different route. My memory's a little fuzzy on this, so Russian Sam, can you catch us back up on what happens here? Yeah, so at this point, the Russian Communist Party is led by this fellow named uh, Gennady Zyuganov. Uh, it still, still is, right? is. Yeah, he's yeah, still there. Yeah, 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 it still is. That decrepit old piece of shit. Look, uh, when has the gerontocracy ever done a bad thing for Communist Party in uh, in, in Europe? <laughs> or anywhere else, for that matter. So Zyuganov, uh, he was sort of very much a middle-of-the-road man in, in, the, in the Communist Party. Uh, he was very much against uh, Perestroika, but he also didn't occupy a very high position. He was... Uh, he was in the Moscow uh, City Council when when the breakup of the Soviet Union happens and there's no longer a Soviet Communist Party. He reconstitutes uh, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, and so he's not really that serious in terms of opposition. Uh, but nevertheless, he he's still a symbol of. He's basically the return to tradition guy, not in the bad way. <laughs> In 1996, you have the elections happen in in Russia for the post of presidency. And Yeltsin is in very, very deep shit. His approval rating is like 2%. Um, as I said, uh, the economy has gone down the drain under his tenure. And as a result of that, he... And, and, and this noticeable decline in people's living condition is compounded by the fact that the man is a total buffoon. As in, like... Like he was a total alcoholic. He was always getting drunk at, at public meetings. Uh, one time when he was visiting Washington D.C., they found him wandering uh, at the city yeah. in his underwear. Famously, yeah, yeah, looking for pizza. Yeah, yeah. There's also a lot of news footage of like him standing next to a uh, Bill Clinton, just archive footage. It's very obvious he's drunk, visibly drunk. Yeah, yeah. If, if anyone's seen the recent movie uh, Another Round, the whole segment where they pause just for footage of drunken Yeltsin. Yeah, so very unpopular fellow, but there was a man in America, a man by the name of Bill Clinton. Was there ever? Who was a friend of our dear friend Yeltsin, and Yeltsin uh, was able to secure a huge amount of aid, like to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars uh, directly, so people's salaries could get paid, people weren't getting paid. 
uh, for months because uh, there wasn't any money in the coffers. And on top of that, uh, the oligarch-aligned uh, media was able to uh, really whip up a storm against uh, Zyuganov and to say that if he were elected, uh, there would be a, a rerun of the Stalinist purges and the country would be flung into civil war and 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 it's going to get even worse than it is now. So so despite the fact that uh, Zyuganov was the front runner for a while, like funnily enough, like everyone thought it was a done deal to the extent that in 1996, he went to the IMF meeting as the presumptive president of the Russian Federation because everyone thought that he would be the guy who was running the show. But uh, our comrades, the Americans, with tons of input from the local uh, oligarchs who had made it big under Yeltsin's regime, were able to pull up his polling numbers, and he was able to win a very slim majority. So what happened, getting back to the main story with uh, Lietov, is that he supported uh, Zyuganov's candidacy in 1996. I guess he was sort of the lesser of two evils guy by that point. While uh, the other members of the NVP just saw him as controlled opposition and that, first of all, he would not be allowed to win, which he wasn't. And second of all, even if he was allowed to win, uh, he's a wet blanket. Nothing is going to fundamentally change. After he breaks up with NVP, he kind of goes back to music and just loses all hope with politics in general. In interviews, he describes himself as apolitical at that point, and he goes on to describe his time with MVP as a deeply embarrassing time and just how stupid politics is and how you really have to get involved in it to understand just how stupid and pointless it all is. But he still makes music and he still, you know, holds these, you know, communist beliefs, but they're not as front and center as they were in the 80s when he was a radical punk and in the 90s when he was a founder of a radical political party. So let's uh, discuss his uh, later career. The album called Zvezda Pods or Star- Starfall, and that one is mostly covers of Soviet folk songs and uh, uh, World War II songs, uh, some songs from movies, uh, uh, that kind of stuff. So it wasn't really original, but it's um, it's great. And his sonic style has shifted completely now. As I said before, in the '90s he was doing more psychedelic folk projects on the side. And now, at this point, this is basically what he's doing full-time. So, no more punk, really. I mean, he still plays punk songs at shows, 
but his new material is much more psychedelic inspired and just less angry. Yeah, I would say that Lyotov in the 80s has a meth vibe, whereas Lyotov in the 2000s has a mushrooms vibe. Lyotov in the 80s himself looks like he's on heroin. He, he very well might have been. I mean, he probably was. Yeah, and then his final album was really uh, very much uh, psychedelic. It was Sechemps uh, Nyatsasne, or uh, Why Do We Have Dreams? And that was the final album that was actually released. He passes away in 2008 at 43 years old. Um, he was never really in good health. No, yeah. But... Which honestly, it's a little bit later than the period we're talking about, but that seems to be kind of a pattern in post-Soviet Russia. Just a severe drop in life expectancy that, from what I understand, has never really been recovered. It's not, it, the, it has been reversed, but it has not gone back to where it should be. The it, it, I believe dropped to fifty seven or fifty yeah for men probably I think in the mid nineties. Yeah, and his later life, Letov had a lot of trouble escaping his MVP phase because you know he described himself as a fascist in interviews, and he was part of a party that everybody considered a fascist party. So you know it was a whole thing. I mean, I think he was banned from some countries forming like um, Estonia and. Uh, Latvia, I think it was. Oh, those aren't real countries anyway, according to the MVP. <laughs> yeah, and um, of course, he also had like a lot of fascist fans to his death. You know, it's a very tragic end. It's a real shame because he was somebody who was like an incredible musician and um, very politically motivated. But it's very unfortunate that he ended up hitching his wagon to something that was so stupid that was honestly just going to like make his life miserable no matter what. Yeah, he's a he's a fascinating cultural figure, a problematic fave, I suppose, of mine. But his decision to affiliate with the NBP and describe himself as a fascist and do things like go on stage as Adolf Hitler, uh, or a band naming calling himself Adolf Hitler, certainly makes it hard to tell people to check out his music sometimes. Yeah, but again, it, uh, this stuff has a very different resonance in the Russian context than it would in the American context. That's something that also needs to be explained to people. You know, he lives on. He's still a very popular, famous musician. His popularity has skyrocketed to where it was in like the 90s, even. like You'll see people uh, wearing shirts with his face on it, and he's just... And he's, it's finally okay to talk about him in a reverent tone in, in Russian media. So you have a lot of articles uh, praising him on like his anniversary and whatnot, and he really left a founding mark. But uh, a lot of the political content of his songs was stripped out. It's no longer about communism per se, but now it's just a general mark of rebellion against uh, Putin. Yeah, and even his involvement with NBP is kind of sanitized at times. Studying for this episode, we watched a couple of documentaries, Russian documentaries, I think both released around 2014. In those, the MVP doesn't come up a lot. And even uh, I watched some other stuff and read some stuff, and it's kind of like a footnote. For whatever reason, people are just, they would rather remember him as a musician. Um, speaking of his popularity going to New Heights, there was an effort to try get his name as the, the name of the Omsk airport, which unfortunately didn't go through. I guess uh, somebody on the committee to... Uh, renamed the thing, kind of vetoed that as one of the online suggestions. But yeah, 
still a lot of uh, love for him in uh, his hometown. Yeah, and his apartment is now a museum. Yeah, so so to close out uh, the airport saga, after uh, the committee refused to rename the Omsk airport in his honor, there was uh, a small, like an even smaller regional airport in Popovka, uh, which became the Lietov airport. But that was actually closed in 2019 because it turned out that the owner was illegally using agricultural land as a runway, which is <laughs> welcome to Russia. Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode on Yugor Letov. The strange life and sad death of one of the weirdest people in... You could say one of the strangest people in modern history, I feel like. At least in terms of musicians. One of the strangest musicians I've ever known. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, a lot of musicians have, like, you know, participated in stuff like the Oz Festival, right? Or just, um, you know, concerts about AIDS and stuff. You know, stuff that has a political tint. And, you know, some of them endorse political candidates that's like a big thing all the time none of them found a political party right and yeah encourage yeah. their like fans to join said political absolutely party. you know like like say you will <laughs> say what you will about the nozzles but it's kind of funny to compare them to the much more impotent association of countercultural music in like the 60s and 70s how like you know it's american rock stars really thought they were going to end the war in vietnam and guess what uh protest songs don't do shit yeah, Lietov says, I think that Russian rock has always been different from your rock. In the West, rock was popular music, that is pop music, an attribute to mass culture. While in Russia, it was a religion. It's more than music. It's more than rock in and of itself. Our rock has always been religious. It's the music of revolt. For us, that is our rock groups. It is war. It is revolt. It is a constant process of overcoming with the help of which we break through from an esoteric and metaphysical point of view to the other side. In terms of style, every restyling is a small revolution. And I feel like that's great now to leave off on. Thanks for listening. Yeah. And uh, hey, thanks thanks to Russian Sam for these incredible translations. Yeah, seriously, these are very good. You can find a lot of shitty translations for the Etov online. Well, I gotta serve the people and the national Bolshevik cause. Thanks to Sam for that. Thank you for listening. I'm Abram. I was joined by Russian Sam, Liam, and Halal Sam. You can find all our ads in the description if you want to follow us on Twitter. And... This was Gladio for Europe. Yeah. And we'll see you guys soon. Yada bye. Later.